thanks so much, Steve, for being here on the Wave Capitals guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. You're my 15th guest on the podcast. How are you today? Good seeing you. I'm good. That's my daughter's uh, favorite number, 15. So that's a very good sign. I think I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, Steve. It was great to work with you at ESP, and I'm so glad we can keep in touch after all these years. And thank you again for being here today. Steve, when you think of relationship building, everybody has their own definition, but what does relationship building mean to you? Great open-ended John Sawatsky type question. The guy who is our interview uh, guru at ESPN. Um, I guess I think it's about respect overall. And to me, having great relationships with people where I've worked has been important. Not not even looking up so much, but but looking sort of like down in terms of like the pyramid of not the, like the CEO, but the new employees. Like for me at ESPN, this is a huge company. I was always I felt like trying to look out more for uh, people who are. Just coming in I felt like that relationship was more important to me whether it was beneficial or not to my career it probably wasn't but I felt like that was a more important relationship to focus on than the CEO uh, or, or even upper you know lower levels of management or upper management um, and I think it's it's a it's about respecting that everyone is at a first day um, in a, on a job site in, in a workforce and that you've had those days and you don't know where the, the bathroom is or you don't know how to park your car and to always be uh, empathetic to that. And I think that sort of, you know, a sincere care um, breeds a strong relationship. And then that just bring, breeds a positive work environment. And for me, that's always been my focus. Maybe it'd be different if I ever ascended to a you know, upper level of management of some company, but I just tend to look more at the sort of common worker at considering myself among them uh, in terms of a work relationship. And then in terms of even whether it's my wife or my friends, I guess they're always based on any good relationship is based on some level of respect and hopefully a mutual respect. Yeah, because if there isn't mutual respect, there just isn't much of a relationship to be had. Absolutely. And, you know, you touch upon your time at ESPN and, you know, respect is an operative word. It's a key word. It's a great part of relationship building, respecting one another, working together, respecting his or her own ideas or thoughts, how to lead a company, lead a team, be able to execute a plan and deliver on that plan to put it in motion to achieve a desired result for whatever, for whatever project a team would be working on. When you think about your early days, you know, well before ESPN, talk about some of those early examples of relationship building, whether in, in your family growing up uh, or some of the places you worked at before ESPN. Yeah, so that's a good point you make about family. I think there's different relationships, right? Like the relationship I have with my daughter or with my parents is so different than a, than a coworker. But I will say, in a way, some of the relationships that shaped me were not as positive. I had a great upbringing, don't get me wrong. But like, uh, you know, a, a high school uh, coach who, who really did treat me well. And I, I think I've, I came, I look back at that a lot. And I think not only did it kind of make me stronger, like, okay, I'm going to achieve my goal. I'm never going to let someone else tell me what I can or can't do. Um, but it also shaped me in terms of how to have a better relationship with someone. That way, if I have to cut them from a team or whatever the negative thing is, um, I, I hope that I'm better at doing that and, and enduring bad outcomes as well. And so early in my career, I worked, I had a weird career, as you may or may not know, but I sort of bounced from tiny station to tiny station all over the country. And I moved like 13 times back and forth for jobs or unemployed you know, New York, back to Seattle, New York, in small cities, New York, uh, Michigan, Arizona. I was like going all over the country. And in part, some of that was because of really bad leaders. And what I think it did is it hardened me in a way, which, which may not be great in the short term, but I do think in the long term, it, it just made me, it crystallized, okay, that's not how it's done. And so I've always tried to do the opposite. And like, I do a lot of coaching, youth sports, you know, and, and basketball, flag football, you name it. And I always try to make sure that I'm really communicating with the kids on the end of the bench more than the stars. It's funny, even just to verbalize it now, I guess it kind of parallels how I see a work environment too, where I feel like I'm looking out for the little kid. And maybe that's a little bit because I had some negative experiences either, um, you know, as a kid in, in sports or, or whatever, but, but in my work, in my career as well with, uh, people who I thought would be mentors that ended up being really bad mentors, giving bad advice, giving bad examples, uh, you know, backstabbing, things like that. 
I think when you, for me, when I saw that and, and had to endure that, it could have sent me two ways. Could have sent me into a place where I'm, I'm really bad at relationships. It happened to me and I'm going to, you know, it's like hazing. Like, well, I got hazed, so I'm going to haze you. And I was always, I feel like I'm the type of person who, when that bad stuff happens to me, I, I feel horrible about it. I feel bad. I feel sorry for myself like everyone. But I try to, when I'm moving it forward, like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to somebody else. And um, I like to think that I've, you know, helped make that happen. So it's funny because in my 20s, I don't know that I had as many great mentors, but then the ones that I did have were fantastic. So I'll give you a quick story. Uh, having been unemployed, I started uh, uh, substitute teaching and coaching in Seattle. This is like 2000, 2001. And one of my favorite players, unfortunately, was diagnosed with brain cancer and he did pass away. But before he passed away, I'd finally gotten another TV job. So I moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, but he's in the final stages of cancer. The 16 year old kid who I love dearly and become really close with his family and all his friends, all his teammates, a uh, boy named Ari. And then at the end, I, I just couldn't bear to not be around him and his family. I just thought, boy, I could get a job at some random TV station, you know, anywhere in the country, not anywhere, but if I have to move to Yuma, Arizona, again, I'll do it. If I have to move to Florida, I'll do it. But I'm only going to have a finite time with this kid. And so I quit. And I quit very respectfully, but I explained to my boss what I was going through. So this is a man named Ken Hyde, my sports director in, in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. And he was a great person, a great mentor who really saw the forest for the trees. And he said, Steve, I know, you know who you are. I know this is sincere. I've been there for a couple months. He said, look, work on the weekends, do um, like Friday night football, anchor Saturday, Sunday. We need you to do that. We hired you for that. We need you to do that. And then go home. It, this is Michigan, so it's like, you know, East Coast time. Go back to Seattle, spend four days a week with your buddy come back here, work three days a week. And so you're basically getting two extra off days a week. No boss in my history of broadcasting ever, you get extra days off. He said, you'll make it up. Like, I know you're good for it. I'm not gonna put it in a contract. You're good for it. The news director signed off on it. And so it allowed me to do two things, stay in the business, which I really fought hard to be in, and see my buddy as much as reasonably possible in the last couple of weeks of his life. And I'll never uh, forget that. And 11 months later, I got the job at ESPN. Wow. Had I followed my heart and just said, no, I need to be with Ari as much as I can, I really doubt that I would have been at ESPN there and maybe ever, because as you know, it's so lucky it's an anchor to get to ESPN. So right. if it wasn't for Ken Hyde, and I told him this, like I wouldn't have had the career I had. And he would have had every right to say, look, you're a good guy. You have to do what you have to do, but I need someone here full time. He could have said that, but he knew that it was going to be a, a moment of you know months or whatever until I could earn back those days off I had accrued. And um, I, that's the kind of relationship that I want to have with the people that I work with. And that, like, so I finally found someone like that six, seven years into my career. That was, in my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was probably one of the early turning points in your career. I mean, from the perspective, you know, you were talking about how you had some negative instances working at these local stations, but then here you are in Michigan and your news director, he's paying it forward, so respectful and, and sympathetic and understanding of the closest that you had with Ari and the fact that by getting to prioritize time with him, that, like you said, it opened the door for you to work at ESPN. And you're right, you would probably have still been at that local station, or if you had felt at that point that it wasn't gonna work out, maybe you would have found another opportunity, but I'm so happy that it worked out that way. And I'm so sorry to hear about the passing Thank you. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll tell you another thing, like it, it wasn't mutually, uh, it, it was mutually beneficial. I think like if you're a TV station, especially a small market TV station, and I don't know, two months after hiring someone as a, you know, it's not the number, I'm not the number one spot on the team, but there's a weekend sports anchor. Like if, if Steve leaves, I got to hire someone else. I like go through that process again, bring someone in, train them. And, and the work that I did, I mean, I think it was really good. It's also the time in my career where I really doubled down. I was 29 at that point, and I thought, I've been slugging away at this, and I haven't. I really found clarity through losing Ari and through staying in the business. Like, I have to even put more effort into what I'm doing and focus better instead of running around to get 26 sound bites and thinking that's a day well spent. Get 10 sound bites, but spend more time making sure my eyes center which by the way i hope it is here but you know i learned i, I would do all, all this hustle on friday and i come back my tie is off a half an inch and it's all the viewer can really see is like i can't even tie his tie right they don't see that i'm you know trying to do all this this work with a team or on my own or whatever cool. so but i so i think in the ensuing year that tv station in battle creek also got the benefit of someone who had 
double down on being a great worker and I, I think great, you know, local sportscaster to the point where I got lucky enough to vault to ESPN. So when you talk about relationships, to me, they're two-way streets. And it isn't just I received from them, although I did. And, and obviously in the calculation, I feel like I got came way out ahead. But I like to think that I respected that and then earned it, paid, kind of paid it back a little bit by giving them, you know, hopefully one of the, you know, a, a great year of work, at least the best that I could do. And I think it's, again, one comes from the other. Yeah, I think that relationships are a two-way street. And the fact is, is that, and going back to what I said about paying it forward, if you were so generous and so kind to, you know, whether it's a neighbor, a family member, you know, a colleague whom you work with, I mean, it's going to benefit in the long run. And you don't just go out of your way to be nice for someone just to get something in return. You be nice and do good and do well regardless. I mean, those things that happen organically, I mean, that's, you know, I think, you know, nature working at its best, you know, yeah. with fellow, you know, mankind or womankind, right? That, you know, you're able to uh, be the person you are and, you see who your true friends are or who people who really care about you because they're going out of their way to help make your life better. And, you know, those people you would hope could instill those uh, virtues on others when they're able to do good for them too. Yeah. I'm a big believer in karma, you know, and, and I think you just said like, be good just to be good. But when you are a good person, I think then good things happen to you. You start to see things a little more positively. And I, it's funny, my daughter approaching the teenage years, I, remember, I was telling her recently, like, I, you know, I wasn't always, I think, as well-rounded person. Hopefully, I mean, you grow. And I told her at, at some point, 12, 13, 14, I just realized it was easier to be nicer than not nice and to just, um, you know, say, okay, or, or try to learn instead of always fight, like it's a very natural preteen teen thing to do fight physically but to kind of fight back and push back, back. and um and it's not to say that you're always uh uh you know weak in terms of character it's the opposite i feel like you by being a little nicer you end up having a stronger character like that's who you are you're it's easier to stand up to peer pressure for maybe a kid if you're very confident in who i am i don't want to drink or skateboard or whatever the activity is right and um I think those things kind of help shape who we are. And then that impacts the relationship we have with everyone. If I'm an ESPN anchor, I'm sort of um, figuratively spitting on the production assistants, the young employees who are 22, 23 coming out of college. You know, what are they going to say about me when they're, they'll, they'll say, that guy's kind of a, you know, uh, I won't use the word, but you know, I, I, but I think also the key is not to do it because of how people react to you, but just to be who you are and hopefully a good person. Um, and, and, and I've said, I've said this to people too, like if who you are is like that, you know, arrogant on my way up, like that, that will come back to bite you. And that gets back to karma too. I just think like how you treat people matters, um, how you treat your loved ones matters and how you treat people at work matters. And so all those relationships can be different, but they're kind of built on the foundation of, I respect you and hopefully you'll respect me. Definitely. It's, it's cyclical, you know, and you never know where someone's going to be five, 10, 20 years from now and yeah. how you treated them in the past or how they treated you in the past could, you know, resurface later. And I think that you're exactly right. You know, no matter whether it's a colleague, a family member, a neighbor, you know, whomever, whomever you cross paths with for one way or another, that's all that matters is being the best person you can possibly be and improve every day and learn and grow each step of your life. And, you know, talking about ESPN, when you got there, you know, what are some of those early relationship building moments? I mean, was there a certain sports center uh, moments, you know, when you were on the anchor desk, I know you, you know, you did outside the lines, you know, filling in for Bob Lee and, you yeah. know, just talk about your time at ESPN. Uh, I know our mutual friend, Mike Hill, you know, I, I remember you, and him were close and he was one of my uh, earlier guests on my podcast. So yeah, just, you know, yeah. bring me back to those times when I was a production assistant there. Yeah. Mike was, is, I'd say probably my, the best, my, my, the best friend that I made at ESP. I mean, I'm thrilled that I've had a lot and I stay in touch with a lot of people. Um, so that's a great question. I mean, so early on for me, I would say uh, mentor, well, Kenny Maine just, He's a Seattleite, and I'm from Seattle, and I grew up right. watching him on one of the local stations, and he would do this thing called the Dog Days of Summer, where he'd like have a picture of a dog while he's doing baseball scores. I don't know, I remember this as a young kid. <laughs> and I get the job interview there, 
and had one common friend with him. I was looking for any kind of advice on what how the interview was uh, going to transpire. And so my the one friend was a local columnist, knew Kenny, and he connected me. And Kenny was great. I called him. I'm a nobody in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, you know, still at this job where this guy had allowed me to stay. And I just you know, begged him for advice on the phone and he couldn't have been greater. So he was kind of a mentor, even though it's not that he and I are like best buddies, but we stayed in touch and he's been back in Seattle a lot. We've seen each other a few times. So he was a great mentor, even though we weren't that close. Whereas like Mike Hill and Darinoka, we kind of came in the same time, 2003. And I'd say we were, you know, as, as tight, you know, as everyone has their little groups of people they came in with and Kevin Agandhi, guys like that. Um, Neil Everett was a great mentor without trying to be. Again, he's a West Coast guy, so I had an instant bond with a Washington State guy or Hawaii cool. guy. Um, and I got to work with him a lot. And working with him was one of those – and working with, like, Bob Lee a little bit. But I worked with Neil before. And you're watching you're, – you're doing your thing. You're Michigan-Penn State highlight. And then you look over, and he's doing the, whatever, Oregon State-Cal highlight. And he's just killing it. It's funny. He's on point. Everything is timed right. So you kind of watch that and – me, I try to aspire to be it a little bit. I'm not trying to copycat him, but like, okay, well, his game is here, and I know my game is here. He'll never say it, but I know I'm going to elevate to here, you know, and then he just steps it up. And so, like, that was a, a guy who sort of mentored me without even trying. Um, Bob was great. Bob, Bob Lee is just, you know, an icon. And so, anytime you get to do a sports center with him, you're, you know, like, you just feel like, like you're the Beatle, you know, I, mean, I don't want to like do anything wrong well and just, him and chris berman are like the, the two beatles right two oh yeah four. absolutely I, I mean i remember dan patrick opening uh, the door for me to the cafeteria and i was like what is this is early my first week i couldn't believe i was near dan patrick and then i get to like call him a colleague i never anchored a show with him um but doing bob's show that was a huge honor and i always felt like i need to step up so like that was a really powerful thing for me when i did my audition and in my interview i was on the old sports center set that old meaning like uh, I guess it was late 90s for like a yellowish set that turned into the outside the line set for a while. So I, being on that during the audition was crazy cool and crazy, you know, intimidating and scary. And then they they got a new set. So Sports Center was a different set and that one became the outside the line set for a while until it changed. But that was where I did, I remember doing my first outside the line show. I really lobbied hard to do it. And as you know, it's a bit of a political minefield there to try to like, are you an NFL person? Are you a tennis person? Are you... And I tried some things that sort of hadn't worked, and I realized, oh, I really like this investigative stuff. It's the same reason I like to do news now. I'm, I'm, I've always been um, interested in multiple things, so not just sports, right? So, but then I finally get a chance to do outside the lines, and uh, I just remember, I at this moment, I can remember exactly sitting there, like facing the camera, and thinking, "This is it. This is outside the lines." Like you know, it's Bob Lee's show, and that was a huge honor. So even and again, Bob's been a great mentor, but it wasn't like I was in his office every days or at his desk you know asking for you know big anchor you know advice it was just sort of absorbing trying to absorb it trying to emulate those guys in my own style uh but those are some of the guys that like in terms of names who jump out but in terms of like my friends you know scott reese is still a great friend to this day uh mike hill still a great friend to this day dari noka uh anish Shroff, kevin agandhi i'm sure i'm missing some people but but also interestingly enough for me a lot of my closest friends were guys in the research department. I say guys because statistically at ESPN, they're, they're guys, but men and women, but in the research department um, who are like behind the scenes, nobody would know who they are, but Greg Found is a guy who I'm super close with. I did it, went to Denver, saw him, met his wife, like um, coached a basketball team with him. I always- Yeah, Greg Found, I was the uh, I was the production assistant for the 2011 uh, college, football league, uh, college football season with Jesse Palmer and, and the late John Saunders. And then, you had yeah. John Anderson and Scott Van Pelt fill in and Greg found and Harold Shelton uh, yes. was a part of my team. And I, I still keep in touch with Harold. Yeah. Harold at the big 10 work as, as I understand. And like Mark Collins, a producer who I'm really good friends with. He was a big 10 network until recently. So some of my yeah closest friends, I, I probably you know name dropped the five or six in terms of on air guys. Um, but a lot of the off air staff were the people I was closest with. And um, I'm really proud of that. In fact, my proudest moment at ESPN by far, like for sure I had a ton of on-air moments that, you know, I, I, I'll never take for granted. But the proudest moment I had was they had this award. I don't know if they still do. They call it the game ball. It's like a football. I don't know if they had it when you were there. They must have. And it, it, was, it went from employee to employee. It was like kind of a, good, a good guy award. 
And sometimes with these things, the companies that the executives pick, and it's like, oh, of course they picked Scott Van Pelt, or not that Scott isn't a great guy, but like they'll pick someone who generates, I don't know, it, you just feel like it's done out of some reason besides sincerity. So this is a war just went from employee to employee. And so as deservedly so, it didn't go to anchors because anchors get enough attention and enough love and, you know, don't need it. And some of them don't deserve it. Like, not every anchor is a great guy. Okay, so um, one of my bosses, uh, Barry Sachs, I think, was came up and said, hey, we need you to come over to the you know, newsroom. Maybe it would have, I forget it. He's Craig Wax, actually. Craig Wax. And he said, we need you to come to, come to the research department at, you know, as soon as your show is done. I said, okay, that's weird. Like, am I in trouble? Did I do anything? Did I, what did I do wrong? Like, human resources. Anyway, get there. And then it was uh, Jason McCallum was a researcher there. And he was presenting me the game ball, like an award for characters as a good guy. And I was just totally overcome, you know, crying. Because it was, it was like um, validation that um, all those things I was talking about earlier, it's not just empty words. Like I do care, and certainly I didn't do it for an award, but like I do care about people regardless of their um, status and in life, but even at ESPN. And I don't think everyone does that. And probably every anchor doesn't do that. And maybe not a lot of anchors do that, but the people that I was closest with, I felt did. And I thought it was, because I realized that I very much recognize uh, a researcher is just as important to sports center as the anchor. Anchor delivers it. That's a skill, and I'm proud of what I do, and I know that I do it at a high level. But it doesn't happen without a researcher. Like I can't tell you that Penn State has won three of its last four games if I don't have someone handing me that information, and um, or at least at that level, you know, I, I I can know what I know, but it doesn't happen uh, without the rest of it. And I I recognize that, and I think those people are as deserving as praise as certainly an anchor and, and more, in fact. So. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of answering your question of three plus one, but it's just about, again, like relationships kind of, that's why I'm thrilled to be involved with this because I thought you were going to ask me financial questions. I'm like, I'm just wrong, got to ask about that. But relationships, I feel very proud of, of mine, even if I didn't ascend to become as famous as Scott Van Pelt or Reese Davis or whatever. And they're all great guys. I'm not tagging them at all. Like Reese is an amazing guy and helped me and helped lots of people, same with Scott. And, and you know, by and large, John Saunders, again, mentored you know, countless people there, but um, I'm just proud of the imprint that I left, whether I'll, I mean, I'm sure I've already forgotten there, but I know the people who I love, love me. And we both, you know, we're along for that ride. Well, do you feel that the relationships that you built at ESPN, you know, changed or however you implemented relationship building where you are, you know, in Seattle or even coming from Houston to Seattle? I mean, ESPN, such a, you know, good part of your career, but it's not the only place that you've yeah. worked for. But is it something about ESPN that stands out in a way where, and having been so involved in the sports media scene because, you know, you're calling games or you're going over sports that are highlights or you're filling in for Bob Lee or whatever tasks that you had at the time, but how has that shaped you, I think, now, you know, where you are at the local station? Do you feel like if you had never worked at ESPN, you'd be a different type of local news anchor? That's a great question. Hard to answer because it's like, uh, you know, crap I was on is the only thing I can comment on. Um, I will say I, I had going through a really hard time in my 20s in terms of my career um, definitely made me a more... Um, I think well-balanced person at ESPN. I, I, I know what it was like to A, be unemployed and, and do true like hard labor, um, you know, scrubbing toilets and like being on a roof. Like I've done that kind of stuff. So I always respected what it meant to even have a bad day at ESPN. I can sincerely say that that was almost without fail better than the best day in a lot of the menial jobs that I had um, where, you know, that could easily be 365 days a year. So I never have taken that for granted. So I'd say the hard time that I had in my 20s made me a much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, fulfilled person at ESPN, even if I wouldn't get the anchor assignments I wanted. And then in terms of like how ESPN affects me now, that's one of the hard things about um, being at ESPN is it's super competitive. So on the one hand, it's amazing. You're, you know, especially in local sports, you're always fighting for two minutes in a newscast, two and a half minutes in a newscast, and you're getting cut because there was a storm. And so now you're down to 30 seconds in, of sports. You get to ESPN and it's like, no, we need to do a 30 minute show just on the Seahawks Raiders, or we need to do a, you know, a nine minute segment on a sexism in sports. It's great. It's, it, that's a big challenge is trying to, to do that well. 
Um, so you're in a place of great camaraderie, but also great competitiveness. There's only one 11 o'clock sports center, and that's like the big show. If you're not on it, you're trying to get there. If you get there, someone else isn't on it. Someone else is trying to get your job. So it's very competitive. And I, again, probably for worse, I would say I was a little like too happy to be there that I wasn't, I wasn't good at playing that game of like of uh, the politics that, that some people are. And it's not necessarily a negative thing. Like that's part of moving up in, in business is understanding an avenue and a path and how to get there and making that relationship with the upper man. Like if I could go back, not that I do anything differently in terms of who I hung out with or bonded with, but I would try to be smarter and wiser about playing uh, that game, so to speak, of making sure, it's not a game, but making sure that people in power knew what I had done, what I contributed, and without doing it in a braggatory way, but just saying, hey, hey here's a take. Um, so by contrast, like how does that impact me afterwards is, um, I feel like I'm better at doing that that sort of thing, making sure that my news director now knows, hey, here, here's you know six things that I've done this month. Did you see any of them? What'd you think? How am I doing? Checking in on that. I think I'm probably smarter, just A, your age into it a little bit. And B, because being at a place like ESPN uh, really teaches you the uh, importance of looking sort of you know up as, as, as well as around. You have to really make sure that the relationships with the people above you are as strong as uh, as other relationships in your life. And I think I probably didn't do a great job of that at ESPN um, com compared to how I would try to handle it if I was there now, being more uh, alert to that, assertive about that relationship. Um, so that's something that I, that I think I've carried with me. And um, and I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm confident in my, in my job because of being at ESPN. Like there is a, a level of excellence there that is, is very demanding. And when you do it and you do it for a good amount of time, and I was there for nine years for an anchor, that's pretty good. You know, again, it's not Linda Cohn. Like I didn't, I'm not doing 40 years there, but I'm, I feel proud of and confident in the fact that I wasn't like a little flash in the pan. Oh, I had a good audition and he got a gig. And then after right. two years, they cast him aside. So that gives me confidence that I know I can do this job. I can do it at a high level with, you know, millions of people watching or in a smaller market, not that Seattle's small, but a smaller, you know, piece of the pie than ESPN, I know I can do the job. And that allows me the freedom to try new things. And I'm better about that now too. Of course, you know, ESPN is a lot of pressure every time you're on the air. You don't want to say a bad word. You don't want to say a wrong word. Um, and that shapes you into, I think, coming out at a high level and being the, you know, in baseball term, like hit every single time. Like make sure that you're never having a bad at bat. And I hope that that carries over to my work now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I like the fact that you know, you look back on your time on ESPN and, you know, you've always been a person with great humility, you know, and you're able to relate to so many people because you recognize that, you know, the different personalities at ESPN or the different ways people went about doing things, but, you know, you just were who you were, you did what you felt comfortable with. And I don't like the characterization as well of a game because I feel that as long as you're genuine and that's how everybody should be, you learn about all your experiences at a place and you see, you know, what worked well, what didn't, but at least you don't look back and say, oh, I did this. I'm not happy about this. I think that for someone like yourself, because you left on great terms, you know, at an organization like ESPN, who knows, maybe in the future you work at ESPN again, or, you know, even if it wasn't the way you thought that you would be completing your time there doesn't mean that you could never work at ESPN or another network again because you have a great reputation and reputations precede you. And that is important in any part of life that wherever your stepping stones are or wherever they lead you, or you may stay at local news forever, um, you know, at least your options are available to you because you are a good person every step of the way. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. But I, I think, you know, the and the dreams change too. Like my dream as a 13 to 29 year old was get to ESPN. Literally, I had someone the other day, I was doing a, a shoot with a, an old high school friend and she said she remembers when we were in middle school, I was like, I'm going to be at ESPN someday. Like it was really that drive for me. But I was thrilled and so lucky to accomplish it and then you know was married had a kid and the dream changed a little bit it was like all right if I have to be on call all the time and be ready to move to different shifts which is part of the reality of being an anchor at ESPN if you're not sort of top five anchor then um you know you want something different you want a little more stability consistency you have someone else depending on you uh, you have a child 
that's in the picture now and you want to be around for as much of that you know when they're awake <laughs> so like you can't always go in at 3 a.m or go in at 11 p.m in the state till 3 a.m and um so that was part of the calculation to shift gears and move to houston and then eventually come back here although it wasn't the original plan but it worked out great and now i feel like i have that and this is the dream be back in my hometown see like old high school friends uh get to be like i'm doing this doing a charity event at my old high school um things like that that couldn't happen at 8 p.m doesn't mean i wouldn't be thrilled and happy to be there for a 20-year run uh or, or what have you but i'm now the goal is stay here stop moving i've done plenty of moving in my life and um at a really great tv station i have a really good position where i get to do a, a show that's important to me and do reports that are important to me about um covid and about environment and about politics and other things that I wouldn't have gotten done if I was at ESPN. Like now I interview Chuck Todd every week. That's kind of thrilling for me. He's very, you know, he, some people love him, hate him, but he's a, a top person in the political TV field. And I get to interview him once a week. So that's a big test for me that I have to come with my A game. I can't, you know, I'm not going to look like a fool in front of him. I need to, need to bring it. And, and again, some of that confidence comes from, all right, I know what I need, to, I need to do to prepare. I don't take that preparation for granted, but I know if I do it, I can feel confident that I can meet him eye to eye. And um, it gives me a lot of satisfaction to be in a place like this at home doing news now. Well, it's great that you mentioned Chuck Todd because I was a, right before ESPN, I was an NBC News, Washington Bureau desk assistant. So I worked for NBC Universal and I had some good conversations with Chuck Todd and, you know, please uh, extend my uh, uh, well wishes to him. And I remember he was such a big Miami Hurricanes Fan. Yeah, and I'm sure he's talked about the, that team with you. So it's funny because we we only have like three and a half minutes every Friday, and so I always ask at least two important political questions of the day, whether it's something local going on here or whatever the big national story is. But I always finish it with some sort of pop culture or sports question because I know he's a big sports fan. So we talked Miami Hurricanes. He's a Washington Nationals fan. They won the World Series a couple of years ago. Uh, he's a Packers fan because his dad was a Packers fan. So we always exchange Packers, Seahawks sort of barbs. Uh, we talk Grammys and Oscars and Emmys. And um, and that's another trick I learned at ESPN in terms of my interviewing with John Sawatsky, who I named up before, who no one will know if it is, but those of us in, in, the, in this world do. Uh, the importance of, you know, clear, quick, direct questions, and then you can, trans, you know, transfer over to a whole different arena and it can be effective. And it's more engaging for someone like Chuck, who's maybe doing 10 of these interviews in a row and getting some sort of the same, 80% of the same questions. And I'll just throw in a, hey, you know, at the Oscars, what did you think of Francis McDormand's speech? Or uh, your Packers, you know, your quarterback refuses to get vaccinated. What do you think? So it keeps him on his toes. And that's just something I wouldn't have learned. I wouldn't do that now if I hadn't had my experience at ESPN. And John Sawatsky, by the way, another guy who the average person has no idea who they are. But to me, that's his relationship with me is very special, very close to my heart. My wife and I know him and his wife. And I, I, I know that I wouldn't be who I am professionally without having met him at ESPN, where of course I was there and I already thought, I'm a good interviewer, I'm at ESPN. And you meet him and you're like, oh, I'm doing things really wrong. That humility that you talked about, humility is a really big, it's an important word for me. It's an important characteristic uh, in the athletes who I loved as a kid. I look back and my two favorite athletes, Barry Sanders and Steve Largent. And both of them were, what happens when they score a touchdown? Hand the ball to the referee. In a way, it's even more intimidating than the big spike, which of course I love too, but like, I'll be here, I'll be here again. I'll be here again, take the ball. Like that really, I don't know, it stuck with me. And I, I try to be, you know, as humble as, as, I, as I can. It's always something I'm working on, right? We're all human, but uh, keep the ego in check. But uh, I think it's served me well. And um, because I, I, I see my, I know my, my place in the world. I'm not, my wife is a doctor. I see what it's like to really be, you know, an important person in people's lives in, in this arena. And I've been a teacher and I know what that means. And I think being a sportscaster or a newscaster does have an important role, but I think it has a uh, you know, misplaced uh, spot in the, in the, you know, the notoriety because we get to be on TV. But I, I feel very um, comfortable knowing where I sit when I'm, when I'm in a room and it's a room full of my wife's friends. I know that their jobs are, are harder in their way than, than mine is and well, more important for society. Well, you also have probably done a lot of relationship building directly or indirectly having getting to know, if you will, the people your wife works with and being in a totally different industry. So talk to me about some of the things that you've learned. And, you know, we were talking offline about 
you know, what we've dealt with with the pandemic and COVID-19 and do you get a booster? Do you not get a booster? Is it the right time? I'm sure you've had a lot of interesting conversations in the, in the scientific realm yeah. of conversation. And it's funny because I'm I, in school, I was horrible at science, but I'm a very curious person. And I do believe I'm, a, I'm I mean, it's when you say it, you become not humble, but I feel like I'm a humble person. But I, I'm one of my best qualities, I think, is I know what I don't know. And I believe that when I was interviewing an analyst in college basketball, Doug Gottlieb or Seth Greenberg or Tim Kirchner, I know that I don't know as much as them and I respect what they know. And when I'm with a doctor, I know that I don't, I didn't, like I've seen what my wife did as a, a doctor who was already an MD and a PhD in Brazil, to come back and get her American certification as a medical doctor and MD here. She had to repeat six years, three years of residency, three years of a fellowship. Like I know what it takes to be at her level and she's still every day watching and learning and reading and learning, reading and learning. She knows what she is. And so that's, the, that's one of the big things is when I'm at a table like that, I, I, I try to ask really smart questions and then listen. As uh, my friend Sean Salisbury, another former ESPN guy says, you, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Use them appropriately. I mean, other people have said it too, but it's a great line he likes to say. And um, so when I'm around... Um, like Dr. Larry Corey, he happens to be a Seattle-based uh, physician, but he's one of the he's helped coordinating the vaccine research in our country. He's best friends with Anthony Fauci. They've been like went to each other's weddings. When I'm with him, I I ask and I listen. I don't try to pretend I know more. And that's that's not to get on a tangent, but that has been a hard thing in this pandemic is to see people uh, who think they know more than doctors because they did two minutes or two hours of googling. And I try to think like your two hours. Put that on one thing and compare it to the hours that my wife has put into right. a lifetime in immunology. It's just, it's insulting me for anyone to think that they know that much. The same way that I wouldn't try to tell uh, Harold Reynolds how to hit a fastball. You know, that's insulting to Harold Reynolds, which is a major league baseball player, right? Uh, it, it's, it's no different. And I think that that, again, has served me well in a situation like this where people have decided to, you know, believe things about ivermectin or uh hydrochloroquine or or whatever I, I don't presume to know i just i listen to people who do know and i follow that and as a journalist that's that's helped me certainly well i mean i think that as you know trained journalists like yourself and and or like you and, and like me you know i have a broadcast journalism degree and now in the past year i've been so excited that i get to use my broadcast journalism degree more in the applied sense and it doesn't matter if you don't have a background, let's say, in a specific industry, but what you can have is, you know, constant reading, being a voracious reader, uh, having a working knowledge of different industries, because I think you said the key word curiosity, you know, being informed, you know, America was built on having informed citizenry, and our First Amendment is so important, and I think that you know, in this country, when you have the freedom to to learn and to grasp any type of knowledge that in our industry, when knowledge is power, especially, and to use that for the greater good, you know, with the words that you can impart on because you have a platform like a broadcast journalist or that's, in a sense, the good things about social media, because if you are people like you or others who are using those platforms to inform and not only to inform, but to be a voice and to be another avenue of insight, that's using social media at its finest. But if it's used for negative reasons by people who are trying to come across as experts, but they're not, that's what's harmful and damaging. And that's where I think polarization occurs. Yeah, it's the flip side of social media, and it and it it also flattens the the tables too, so that anyone can just say anything, and if it gets retweeted enough, it, it becomes it becomes fact for some people. So Joe Rogan, I don't know if it's a hole in the wall, but I know that he, you know Aaron Rodgers and other people takes, and millions of people take their cues from him, and I think that's a really powerful platform, and it's a, it's a huge abuse of that platform to uh, try to say that you know better. Uh, my wife likes to say, you know, both ignorance and knowledge. Neither one has a limit. Ignorance has no limit. When you, you think you know something and you, you, you're really in the dark, you don't know how much you don't know. And the doctors who do know, the scientists who do know, they're based their life on this, 
they know very much how, how little they know. And that's, that schism, is that the right word? That, that difference, that gap between um, what someone who, who thinks they know best and someone who actually knows best, they, they say it in different ways. So those doctors, Dr. Fauci, if you listen to a whole news conference with him, Dr. Larry Corey or my wife, they couch everything with, we don't know much yet, or this is only what we know so far. And someone like Joe Rogan will say, we know this. Ivermectin does work. No, Ivermectin works on a whole different thing for a whole different sect of people or animals. It's, a, it's a, just a different thing. It's a parasite. This is a different. Coronavirus is different. And, you know, even me saying it here, I feel uh, in, a little insecure doing that because although I know it from talking to doctors, I'm, I haven't read the studies. I haven't studied Ivermectin. But my wife has. You know, she's studied coronavirus. So when I listen to people like that, just like if I was going to start a podcast, I would listen to Joe Rogan. He is an expert in that. In comedy, he's, you could argue, but an expert, like he's at a certain level. Um, I, I just think it's the, uh, it's the ultimate hubris to think that you know better than people who actually know better. Well, I think that the message is there's a time and place based upon your expertise to be able to explain certain things that you think will be helpful, but you really can go back to, you know, proving that there's evidence that you are an expert in this or that you've studied enough about the topic where you would feel comfortable and that you're doing good to impart wisdom and knowledge. But there are people who, you know, feel that they know better or best and it will be quickly recognized, if not maybe take a little bit longer, but soon to be realized that maybe this person is not an expert on what they're talking about, or maybe there's some controversial statements that they're making. But I think that, you know, again, everything can fall back into relationship building, because if you're an expert in something, and you truly are an expert, and it's backed by, you know, education and years of applied experience, and whether you're a journalist, like, Sanjay Gupta, not only is he a medical doctor, not only is he a surgeon, but he became a journalist for CNN or just other medical professionals you see that come about on local news to be experts or on major networks, or maybe they, they're heavily involved in digital print media or whatnot. It's great that they are relationship builders too, because they're getting people together for a common cause of understanding, like, what does it take to, you know, do right by following the science, protecting themselves, their families, the people they work with in their places of business, and then, you know, just keep on following the science every day and seeing where it leads. It's okay if an expert says, hey, we don't know this today. You know, I think Dr. Fauci says that, you know, our projections are only as good as our assumptions. I think he's, he has said that. I'm just paraphrasing from what he has said. And I think that is what any medical professional might say, because, you know, you don't know where something might lead maybe two months down the line or six or 12 months down the line, but you're only able to project or predict what will happen based on what you know today. And I think that's smart journalism. You know, it's, nothing sensational about it it's sensational when a person or an expert were to speculate and speculation only exists when it's not deeply rooted in facts that you know from today speculation is based upon an idea that really is not based in either science or not even considered to be an educated opinion so i think really as journalists like you and others relationship building is a part of the profession I mean, I, I would love to get your opinions on that. Yeah, for sure. And social media can play a crucial role in that because it allows you, it allows a, a, a Dr. Vin Gupta, Seattle-based pulmonologist, who's the NBC News medical correspondent, to, to have that outlet, a TV outlet, a Twitter outlet, Facebook outlet, Instagram outlet, a lot of doctors on Snapchat or um, TikTok or YouTube, you know, having that kind of relationship. It's different from the relationship of a loved one. But it's an important relationship, the relationship to the camera, the relationship to the viewer, to the, uh, the TikTok, you know, the gamer, whatever, to establish that and to have that be the direct line of communication instead of that person getting their information from, uh, you know, Joe Rogan or a no number of other people who say they know best when they, when they don't. And as a journalist, I feel like it's my job to try to facilitate that. And uh, sometimes it can feel like it's preaching to the choir. But my sincere hope is 
So one of the things I do now is I do a series called Verify. That my station, our corporation, we do. A, we have sixty TV stations all over the country, Tegna, and and uh, at each of these stations, there are people who do Verify reports, and it's just what it says. It's we take a claim and verify whether it's true or not. You know, claim ivermectin helps with COVID. Okay, let's verify. Let's go to the you know the the makers of ivermectin. Let's go to the CDC reviews of ivermectin. Let's go to uh, um, an immunologist or an epidemiologist or someone who works with that drug, you know, and, and just see. And if it's true, then you say, yep, we verified that's true. And if it's not verified, no, that's not true. And here's why. And then show people your evidence. So I like that because that kind of a using this platform, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, TV, whatever, using that platform and putting it in that context can hopefully break down some walls of someone who says, I don't, I don't believe what they're, I don't. Well, no, we're showing you the document. I'm showing you the actual medical research on ivermectin. You can choose not to believe it, but this is, this is the research. Um, so unless you're such a conspiracy theorist that you think that I'm just inventing it and typing up my own fake you know, research paper, but we reference it. Okay, this was the Scientific Journal of New England, March 1976. Here's what they know about ivermectin. I'm inventing this now, but you know what I mean? I think that's... Um, that's what I like about this medium. And that's what I like about doing news. I, I love doing the sports. Uh, the stakes are different in sports than they all are in news, right? If, if I uh, can find out how to best hit a fastball from an analyst, that's great. And it provides good insight and information and entertainment and allows me to enjoy the, my experience watching baseball forever. Um, if I can have two people watch something and realize, oh, it's having the COVID vaccine will not make me have trouble getting pregnant or give my unborn baby trouble. That's important to know. And if I have been able to impact one person that way, it validates for me the whole the whole process. And so that's just a different type of relationship, right? The relationship that I would have with viewers or with um, a, a YouTuber or a Twitter follower um, and why it's worth standing up, I think, against people who, who uh, promote um, disinformation. And that's why I try to as we say at our TV station, stand for truth. I'm trying to just stand for truth. And that doesn't have any political leaning. It's just science, data, talk to scientists and doctors who know the truth and depend on them and not radio hosts. Radio hosts are not doctors. If I broke my leg, I'm not going to Joe Rogan for advice. And if I have coronavirus, I shouldn't go to Joe Rogan for advice. And I, Joe Rogan is a funny guy. I'm not trying to pick on him, but he has a massive platform. He's put a massive amount of disinformation about a vaccine that plenty of people who actually know would say differently. So I'm, I'm going to go with the people who know. Yeah, well, well said, you know, from from your vantage point, uh, I mean, you're able to speak about all the different, you know, platforms that people have. And, you know, again, it's personal choice, as well as what you feel it would be for the greater good of society, where, you know, you're really preaching, you know, here's where you go for the right and accurate and truthful information, you know, from where you feel is the best places to go for that. So I would, the same way that if someone came to me for financial advice, I'd say, ask the other guy on the camera here, ask Eric. And if someone's asking what it's like to be at ESPN, we both could answer that. But, you know, we have different roles and I think that's okay. And it's fine. You call it humility. I just call it real realism. I just know that I, I know what I don't know. Like I said, I think that's, when I try to fix a toilet and my, my house flooded, I learned the hard way. Okay, I don't know how to do that. Now I can learn, but until then, I'll call the plumber. And if the plumber says, you got to fix the valve, I hope he's not just ripping me off. I hope he's being honest with me. I take him at his word. And the same thing about a financial question, I'll ask you. You know, I hope if someone has a sports or news question or what it's like to be an anchor or report, I'm thrilled to answer. And I feel like I know a pretty fair amount. But if I'm sitting in a room with Tom Brokaw, I'm going to defer to him. You know? Right. I, I, I just think that serves you well in, in life, that uh, relationship to the truth, not to like put it too far, but that's kind of what that is to me. Well, you know, the last question I have is just switching gears. I mean, I've really enjoyed our conversation, Steve. Thank you so much for, again, for being on, on my podcast, uh, the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building and team environment. Talk about Seattle. I've been there a couple of years ago, beautiful city. You know, it's a place where you call home and you know, where do you see your future in, in, you know, broadcast news? I think we touched upon it, but where do you see your future in broadcast news? I mean, are there messages, you know, as you continue to work for the station? I mean, are there messages that you'd like to, you know, implement? Maybe is there a new show or new program that your station thinking about where you might be able to uh, maybe take some of the things that you've, that we've talked about today and maybe, you know, 
be a voice for that. Yeah, I, I mean, the one of the lucky things, like I've had such a blessed life and a blessed career, and I did have a lot of ups and downs, and I've been laid off a bunch of times, and that's very hard, and I'm not minimizing that, but I've also have been so blessed. I had this dream job at ESPN. I have a dream job here now to be in my hometown at a great station at a, on a show that I really like. I get to do these verify segments, which are really true journalism to me. I love that. It kind of fits like outside the lines, but true, you know, getting to the root cause of something and getting digging deep. Um, so I actually, what, what I would say is I just don't want anything to change. Like I'm very happy where I am. I don't want to move again. So I want to be in Seattle. I love Seattle. Um, it's a big enough market for me. I don't have any uh, itch to scratch about. I need to get to Los Angeles or something, you know, some bigger, that's not there. And again, that's because I'm lucky. I was blessed. I got touched by whatever you want to call it to, to get to ESPN. So I, I, I did that and I loved it. And I, I love being here. I love being home. My parents are, you know, three miles away. Like I love my, my old friends are here. Um, I know where everything is. I know how to pronounce everything. These are all benefits of being in your hometown. So I actually don't want anything to change. I love the job. I work hours that allow me to be a great dad and be pick up my daughter at school every day. That's super important to me, more important than anything else. Because I've got just five more years till she's in, you know, college, got a will. Um, so no, my big thing is like if I feel like I'm on the surfboard, I just want to stay on this on the and enjoy the ride and not fall off. Because that's one thing that I've had having been unemployed so often, like every other job basically. I think that's also uh, sort of cauterized into me this like fear that, oh, in six months, this could all be gone. What's next? So I try not to plan for that. I just try to always be uh, ready and do what I can to avoid that from happening. And, you know, God willing, it won't. And I'll just get to be here. And in, in 10 years, you'll, you know, if once your list goes dry enough, you come back to me, you'll be like, oh, he's still at King Five in Seattle. Great. That would be a success for me. Well, I want to really appreciate, again, you being on the show and, you know, I've really enjoyed our podcast episode. Again, number 15. I know that that number holds a special place for you. And I'm so glad to reconnect. And thank you again for all your time and availability. And I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's a total honor. I'm thrilled to be at this company. It's a great company. to be. Thank you very much, Gary. You're welcome. I consider you a mentor and a friend and look forward to staying in touch and happy holidays to you. And we'll talk soon, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. God bless. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. See you later. Bye.